You know the difference between hockey and those other sports? You gotta be tough to be a hockey player. I idolize Dominic Kaczyk. I played goalie because of Dominic Kaczyk. My life in hockey has been started because of Sabres hockey. I didn't need playoffs this year. I wanted it, but I didn't need it. But when you screw up for the fans as much as this team has over the last, like, five years, and just don't hold yourself accountable, I'm sorry. I'll hang up and listen. I'm sorry. Welcome to Two Goalies, One Mike, an in-depth look and behind-the-mask conversation about the greatest game on earth, where everything goes and nothing's off limits. Now I'll tell you something about this guy. This is only three minutes, eh? Whammo! Welcome, everybody, to episode 58 of Two Goalies, One Mike. I'm Johnny Cohen, joined alongside Dwayne Steinel. We are joined by now recurring guest, Dave Starman. Dave, you're a beauty. Thanks for being with us here, pal. Oh, we lost him. <laughs> oh, Dwayne. We lost him. Oh, no, we lost him. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know, while he gets back in here, Cully, you know, it has been about two weeks since we've had an episode. Um, you know, you know, a lot has happened in the last uh, two weeks. Obviously, last night the Sabers broke their uh, their 18 game losing streak with a six to win victory over the uh, Philadelphia Flyers. Um, Carter Hart was a, was a healthy scratch for both games, um, which I know you're a big Carter Hart guy. Unfortunately, you know for you, you know, tough this year, man. My like, I maybe it's, maybe it's because I decided to choose the Sabres Mogilny jersey over his jersey. That's something in the hockey world, some juju. Maybe. I hope it wasn't that. I'm sorry, Carter, but he hasn't looked like himself. Um, Elliot's been thrown in into a Philly team, guys. Let's be honest. They they were my pick, Philly, uh, to you know maybe roll out of that 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 conference. They've shown that that they're invin- they're not invincible. Um, so now that we got Dave, the star of the show, back on. Um, <laughs> We've had we've been this is some of my favorite time of year, college hockey, the tournament, um, a bunch of storylines to go through. Uh, but between you know the five OT game, um, you know the rematch coming up of of the what was it the two thousand nineteen final uh, yep. between Duluth and um, and UMass. Uh, so some really cool storylines going on. I know you've called quite a bit of games. Uh, why don't you just give us and our fans of your take on the tournament so far? Uh, the funniest thing is I joke with the guys at UMass, uh, a couple of assistant coaches. I'm like, you know, you guys beating UMD screws up every storyline in the Frozen Four. <laughs> you got a, a, a good laugh about it because when you when you think about it, on the other side of the bracket with St. Cloud State and Minnesota State, if it's Minnesota State and Minnesota Duluth, then you've got Scott Sandlin coaching against the Sun Ryan. You've got two of the coaches from the 2019 World Junior Team that won silver in Vancouver coaching against each other in Hastings and Sandlin. If right. it's St. Cloud State and Minnesota Duluth, now you've got Brett Larson and Scott Sandlin against each other. Those guys obviously were coaching partners when UMD won a couple of national titles. And Larson has left after each national title to to go out and pursue a head coaching job. So he's been there on a couple of different runs. So that kind of reunites that group and, and they're pretty tight. 
So it's funny, like if if you if you take if for some reason if you take the Minutemen out of the equation for a second, the Minnesota storylines get very intriguing. That being said, I really think UMass got a really good team, and I think that the audience that's you know west of the Adirondacks is going to re- get a really good look at a very good team that plays a lot like St. Cloud State. So that's why I think it's a very interesting matchup for Minnesota Duluth. Their games against the Cloud have been really good this year. So them and UMass, I think, is going to be just a real interesting matchup and. UMass, uh, UMD could look a lot like Providence, could look a lot like UMass Lola times, just with their their grinded out style, skill, but you grind style, patience, that kind of thing. So I, I think you're looking at a couple of really, really interesting matchups because both sides of the bracket have two teams with very opposite styles. Now, starting with that Minnesota Duluth, uh, uh, UMass, you know, bracket, looking at that, um, you know what? Bemidji State, absolutely Gave it to Wisconsin. Uh, they had everything to, you know, Matt, UMass has everything to lose there, and they come out and they dominate. And they play the, with the way Greg Carvel coaches so well, and, and they look good. And then you go to Duluth at the 5 OT game. Will that play a factor? They have some time off. Um, but you know what? Knocking off, who was it? Um, you know, they had Michigan in the first round, right? Um, that's a good team. And then you run into North Dakota, who I'll be honest with you, with your games on the call, that that NCHC final, that was incredible, man. Uh, whether it was the ending, maybe that was the semi. North Dakota came back to score on Denver, I think it was, um, with the tip in front. It's it's just been electrica, and uh, they, you know they outlast North Dakota. So um, you got two good teams here coming up, um, and and it will be fun to see that rematch. I'll tell you what that that Midwest regional. It's interesting because it was three hours prior to game time when Michigan got declared ineligible and couldn't play the game against Minnesota Duluth. And I was really looking forward to that game. Disappointing. Yeah, I thought. I mean, that game would have been a lot of fun to watch, and but that happened, and and that was the early game too. So North Dakota had to play the late game against AIC and then play another late game the second night of back to back, which you know they put on to playing two and a half games that night and. You know, people are wondering whether or not that was a factor in North Dakota losing. But I'll tell you what, you know, you go that long into an overtime, both teams are pretty gassed. And that was some game. That was one for the ages. That's one I'll, I'll always remember. But, you know, moving around the regionals, watching Bemidji State beat Wisconsin, it just looked like Bemidji State was much more dialed in. It looked like Wisconsin never really gained the traction that, Almost that they had like had all year. Wisconsin looked at as this as, hey, we're going to run through that. It just – Right from puck drop, Bemidji State won more battles. They they controlled the game. I you know I like that pushback, but it felt a little too late, and it felt like it was only almost only one player. It was I thought for Wisconsin, it was just an afternoon where they never got rolling. I don't think I know from a coaching staff point of view, they didn't think for one second they were going to roll over Bemidji. I've watched a lot of Bemidji in the last few years, and Bemidji is always a pretty solid team that that generally doesn't beat themselves. They they may not have enough offense at times to overcome a bit more of a juggernaut, but they're never a team that makes the mistake that shoots itself in the foot. They're really well coached. Tom Saratori is a hell of a coach, and he's got a really good staff there with Mike Gibbons there now, having come over from St. Cloud after a basically it was a 25-minute retirement. I think that their coaching staff is just terrific, and they play hard, and they play smart, and they let the horses run when they can. And I just think they gave Wisconsin their best game on a day where Wisconsin wasn't their best. And th- that was kind of the story of that one. And then, you know, they walk into playing UMass and UMass is just, I mean, they're just really good. And to me, the hardest game to win as a heavy favorite in a regional 
situation is game one. I mean, once you get through game one, things flow a little bit better. UMass was really good in their in, in their opening game, but I thought that they just got better as the weekend went on. For sure, for sure. It's a tough story. Michigan, you know, that game being called off messed up my viewing schedule. Um, so, you know, tough bouts for those guys too. Um, you, looking at, down at, at, at the other bracket, you know, what interests me a ton is, is the route that St. Cloud State has taken. You know, tough first-round matchup against a BU team that had a lot of talent, right, and, and coming in. Uh, and, and they beat them, uh, and then, you know, coming then against my my favorite in the tournament, BC. Now, obviously, you lose your the Hockey East, but they were still one of the best teams in the college hockey all year. I don't know about your thoughts there. So for them to come out and win that game pretty convincingly, um, I, you know, they're just on a, a freight train right now. I haven't seen a ton of St. Cloud State this year, um, but just the run they've made, taking out two of the, the Hockey East powerhouses has been impressive. I agree. It's funny. I'm looking at St. Cloud State's schedule right now, and I have seen them 13, 14, 15 times this year. And, I mean, they, they're they're a really good team. They're balanced. They're strong in where they need to be. And, like, I'm pulling up one of their box scores right now because I want to go through their lines a little bit. Uh, they lost Easton Brodzinski, which is tough. He was playing with Nolan Walker and Micah Miller. Micah Miller has been a great story for that team for the last couple of years. And he is just a junkyard dog and strong and smart and north-south and I really like his game, so I'm intrigued to see how they might alter some of their lines. But the big line that they've got is Vietni Mittenen, Yami Kronola, and Zach Akabe. So it's a two fins and Akabe, and that line has been off the charts good for him. Brodzinski started on that line. They moved him off. They moved Akabe onto it. And since then, that line has been flying, and they were pretty good with Brodzinski there too. But where they're really interesting, guys, is on their back end. Uh, Nick Perbix is a hell of a player. He's a really good defenseman, very good 200-foot player. After that, when you get back into our neck of the woods out here in the East, nobody's ever heard of their defenseman. But Spencer Meyer can really play. He's a big rig with a long stick. Brendan oh, Bush absolutely. is a really solid defenseman. Doesn't make a lot of mistakes. Andre Trable is a third-pairing D who just plays, keeps it simple, moves pucks, and winds up getting assists. Luke Jaycox has just been a real good citizen, good warrior for them the whole way. And Seamus Donahue had the hardest job. He's a transfer from Michigan Tech. He had the job of replacing Jack Ashan on the top pairing, and he has fit in seamlessly. St. Cloud, is they are really good, and they are really fun to watch because they like to get after it offensively. It's going to be some great hockey, and uh, you know what? It could make for some really interesting storylines going into the final. Um, I, I, I like it a lot. I like that we, we see this rematch. Um, watching Cal McCarr in that loss because uh, he was on that team, right? Yep. And that was right here in Buffalo uh, back when things were normal. Um, it, you saw the passion on that that mass that mass team, uh, and they still have the, the the I think I'm saying it right, the Delgazos, the yep. Delgazos. I love watching those brothers fly around. They're a lot of fun. So uh, we've been treated to some really good hockey, and we got some great matchups coming up. Um, looking into it, uh, Minnesota State, St. Cloud, um, you, you just touched on, you know, their game plans for both. Um, the, the way the, the way they've been playing, uh, what's your best prediction for this one? I learned a long time ago from John Davidson, never predict the game that you're working in because you're just going to wind up pissing somebody off. I'm sorry. So I, uh, I never predict, but I will tell you this. I, I do think 
that Minnesota State is a little bit underrated in terms of what they can do offensively. I think they've got some firepower that can that can go. They are they've got a really good ground game. They're really good on cycles. They really make a lot of hay when they go low to high. I think their defensemen get pucks to the net pretty quick. Like I like their team and they can defend very well. And for the last decade or so, every free agent scout in the NCAA, you know, me being one of them, has been running around chasing Minnesota State all over the country because between Nelson, Brickley, and Mackey, they've had a defenseman there that you've needed to watch. So those kids on Minnesota State are used to playing in front of big eyeballs that are watching them a ton. And I think that, that has made them a tougher team. They had a really good team last year, and much like a North Dakota, much like a Minnesota Duluth, they had a really good team last year that didn't get a chance to get to a Frozen Four and get to a national tournament. So I think that they come with experience and they come loaded for bear. So the, the question to me is you get Dryden McKay from Minnesota State, who is, you know, all world right now. The question is, how does he handle the offensive onslaught that St. Cloud State can be in terms of the way they get their chances and where they get their chances from. And part two is David Renack of St. Cloud State. I think David Renack's a pretty good goalie, but sometimes he struggles in the first of two games. If he settles in early, if Renack feels good about himself for the first five minutes of the game, and he's feeling it, it's a different story. And I always say that first save to get me in that move, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, like I, for me, I didn't make a lot of first saves, so you know I, I was always chasing it after that. But like, I, I think if David gets himself into this into a groove and gets in early, it, that the hill for Minnesota State to climb, I think, just gets a little tougher because when he wants to be, Renna can be tremendous. Now moving over to the other, uh, the, the UMass UMD. Um, you know what? It's it's funny because they both have nine players back. From from each of the that were nine players on each team that were there at that um, in the, in that rematch in that final game, right? And uh, you know it's tough to to say you know how much can that affect it. Um, I, I like the way that Carvel's run his program. I'm very close with Carson Gusevich, uh, the St. Lawrence transfer. Um, you know, and he's been a horse and he's fitting well on that top line. They got some knife death a lot across that. Uh, that forward group there, and and, and then the way that their their defense have been getting up in the play, um, it, it's just going to be fun for for them to to, to have their. I don't want to say their shot at redemption, but don't think that every, all those nine kids in that group remember just how close it came for them, right? So, um, getting back to this point, it, it's it's going to be funny to see. And and what can we say about UMD back in it? You know, they've been on this magical, I want to call it, what, a 5-10 year run, Dave? It's its just something. They, they're doing something right there, and um, it, it's, it's been fun to watch them. Uh, I'll tell you something. Let's start with UMass. And the one thing I think that's going to be very unique for Minnesota Duluth to handle, and they've saw it quite a bit when they play North Dakota, the way that UMass defensemen play in terms of defending off the puck as far up as the offensive zone, the way that they surf up like crazy and attack high forwards on turnovers. Like they just have a very progressive and aggressive style with their defense core. I mean, they, they want to play a hundred foot game, not 200. And I, I think that when you, when you watch UMass, the one thing you'll notice is they don't start in their own end a lot. Like they don't have to defend a lot and they don't start in their own end a lot. Cause I think they're really good at killing plays in the neutral zone and quick countering. So they're, you know, their games 130 or hundred, hundred to 135 feet long. It's not a 200-foot game if it doesn't have to be, and that kind of is the genius of what I think is their team. And then they're, you know, they're good offensively. They can 
they can really come at you with good layers. So, but Minnesota Duluth is seeing a little bit of that in North Dakota because North Dakota's defense core, which to me was the best defense core talent-wise in the country, you know, same kind of deal. A lot of dive downs, a lot of surf ups, a lot of low wall play, a lot of seals. And for Minnesota Duluth, at the very least, they got a steady diet of that, especially recently uh, during the course of the season. That game shapes up stylistically to be unique. But here's the other side of it. The one thing that the Minnesota Duluth guys told me, and this was after they lost the national title game, was now we've seen the bright lights, now we've been on the big stage, now we understand it. And there's less of a fear of the unknown going into it. UMass, when they went into it, they were, I think, a little emotionally drained from a big overtime win against Denver. You had the Makar Hobie thing on Friday. The whole team was there. You know, it kind of became a long day. And you get to Saturday, you know what? I mean, how much these kids, they're kids. I mean, how much is emotionally left in the tank? By the time you get to that last game after what was a whirlwind two days, I think it's a different story for UMass this time. Now, like UMD, they get there and they understand what this is. They understand the dynamic. They understand the, the time commitment. And they're not going to have to run all over town this time with Hobie ceremonies or anything else because basically once you get to Pittsburgh, you're in shutdown. Like you can't go anywhere anyway. So I think UMass will be in a little bit more of a better mental, physical, emotional state when they get into this game, especially as a semifinal, not a final. And the way that Scott Sandlin handles that group and, and how many different times in big in big games they've been down early or, or whether they're holding on to a lead, they're a well-coached, they're a well-run program, and, and, and obviously that's been a big reason from, for, you know, for their success. Um, so, you know, we're on tap for some great hockey coming up here. Now, will you be doing the, the Frozen Four as well as the final or just the Frozen Four? I will be doing radio for the Frozen Four. We're on Westwood One. It's going to be on both Sirius and XM's Channel 84. Uh, myself and Brian Tripp, who's the play-by-play guy at Penn State, uh, we will be teaming up together. Unfortunately, because of some COVID protocols and issues, uh, Shereen, who's been doing ringside, she would have been a veteran of the crew. She's been doing ringside for four or five years on the radio side. Uh, sh- there will be no ringside this year. We hope to get that back again next year. But uh, it's, Brian, it's Brian and I. Yeah, it, it sucks. But it's Brian and I. Uh, for all three games, and I haven't done a game on radio since May of 93. I am really looking forward to it because that's where I started. So uh, we have a question from uh, a viewer, uh, JT. Uh, uh, Jake Jake Machka, uh, friend of the program uh, with Trainwreck Sports. How insane was it to be a part of the 5-OT UND Duluth game on Saturday? It was, first of all, the way we got to the, to the overtime was as – Nuts is the overtime. It's it's two nothing UMD, and they were in control of that game. I mean, North Dakota is pretty good, but I wouldn't say North Dakota is making a push. They were just they were playing well, and then they get those two goals at the end of the game in the last minute and a half. And Shane Pinto set them both up. And it's funny because the second goal, Pinto put the, meant to put the puck on net, and he whiffed on it, and it just rolled to Kawaguchi, who was open on the back door, wide open, who got the game tied up. And you know, then you get into that five overtime thing, and. There were so many great chances. I mean, North Dakota could have won that game 30 seconds into it. I think there are a couple opportunities where each team missed the far post by about an inch. Yeah, the goal that was overturned, and when the call was, you know, letter of the law was the right call. You had the one of the first times you've seen the BU rule in effect where it played into that overtime thing. And, oh, by the way, Shane Pinto signed with Ottawa. I Shereen just let me know. So uh, wow. congratulations to him. Another good Long yeah. Island boy playing in the NHL. So, uh, but the game was just, it was wild. And I kept thinking a couple of different things. Number one was, I remember watching that Islanders Capitals Easter Epic four overtime game seven. 
1987 and watching Mike Emmerich and Bill Clement do that game. And I know they got a little goofy towards the end of it, but I kept thinking to myself, what a great game that was to watch. And boy, it must have been pretty cool to call one of those. And Doc's told me some great stories about that game. And then Jack Parker's told me a lot of stories about his four overtime game against St. Lawrence in the NCAA tournament back in the 80s. And there was a great story about one of his players got hurt in the third period. And as they went to the third overtime, he had to go back and tell them to get dressed again because they were running out of bodies. And all I kept thinking to myself is this game kept getting longer and longer was, you know what? Now I've got a story to tell those guys. And and if, if I felt like he joined a different club by that game going as long as it did. It was a very cool moment for me personally to be part of something that historic, but just having listened as, and Steve Levy's an old friend of mine. And, you know, Levy's called three, three games that have gone four or five overtimes, including the longest game in the modern history. And Levy texted me during the game and said, Hey, you know, welcome to the whole, you know, welcome to the long overtime history club kind of thing. It was, it was just really, really neat. The funniest text, by the way, was Shireen texting me at the end of the fourth overtime and said, if this thing keeps going, I'm out. <laughs> I just remember she was on Eastern time. But it was just the one, it was a wild game, but like just great stories to tell. That's awesome, man. That'll, that'll be one you guys remember forever. Um, it's been, like I said, I, my, my love for college hockey is always there, even though I went the other route. Uh, a really interesting interview on Spin Chicklets, how Jimmy Howard opens up about how his situation unfolded there. And uh, it really is fun this time of year. Dwayne, do you have any more um, Frozen Four questions here? You know, I, I want to touch on, obviously, Michigan having to pull out, you know, how disappointed it is. They're ranked number two. And the Sabres themselves, they have some stock in with that team. Uh, goaltender Eric Portillo um, having himself quite a year as a, as a freshman. Um, last time I looked, his numbers were pretty outstanding. And we as goalies, you know, obviously can appreciate that, me and Cully more so because, you know, he is – property of the Sabres right now as a Sabres draft pick. What are your thoughts on his season, you know, coming in as a freshman, you know, maybe not expecting to get the playing time that he did, but with what he did with the playing time that he did get, just playing absolutely outstanding. I'll tell you what, I didn't see him play all year. I Every time I watch Michigan, Strauss was playing, and he wrote a he wrote a great story for himself this year too with, with 11 wins, mm-hmm. and I was really looking forward to seeing, to seeing him play against Minnesota Duluth. I thought that would have been a great matchup, but – uh, I, I Pertillo, I just I just didn't see him play all year. I've heard great things about him from their staff. I mean that I can tell you. But uh, all the games when I watched Michigan this year, Strauss was in goal. Oh wow! Yeah, last time I last time I, I watched about two games with Portillo uh, play. I, I streamed him. Um, last time I looked, which is about two weeks, so he was holding down like a one point six five goals against, and just guys just look so calm and net for such a young kid. Just you know, very you know. Very patient, you know, you know, calm feet. Um, I know Cully loves loves to hear stuff like that. And, uh, you know, oh, I can't wait to see. Active hands. Active hands, absolutely. You know, he's, he's been a breath of fresh air and a season for the Sabres, at least, that has been absolutely horrendous. But, you know, going, uh, you know, piggybacking off that, um, a few weeks ago, you reached out to me in regards to, uh, you know, Don Granado and obviously, you know, here we are, you know, a couple weeks later and Don Granado is the head coach of the Buffalo Sabres. Just your thoughts on that. And, you know, what's led up to this for him, you know, his experience coming in and just your overall thought thoughts of Don and, you know, what can he do with this roster, especially with the trade deadline looming two weeks away, you know, obviously he's probably going to have less pieces to work with. You know, Taylor Hall is probably on his way out. Brendan Montour is probably on his way out. And we heard earlier today that Toronto has called on goaltender Linus Olmark. Just, you know, what, you know, what, what are the best attributes of Don and what can he do that maybe Ralph Kruger couldn't do? 
I don't know Ralph Kruger very well. Donnie, I do know very well. And the one thing I will tell you about Donnie through his whole career as a head coach in the minor leagues, as a head coach with the National Team Development Program, uh, as an assistant coach where he's been, uh, Donnie has a great track record of player development. Now, the NHL is not necessarily a player development league. It's more of a ready-made league. And when you're there, you, you need to be prepared for what the NHL brings because there's not a lot of practice time. And there's not a lot of development time at all. And to be honest, the coaching staffs are probably a little bit busier than to be worrying about that development component at the NHL level than they are anywhere else. But if anybody can get a team to play like a team and play more offensive, Donnie can. He is a brilliant, br- brilliant hockey mind. He might be the smartest hockey guy I know. And I love picking Donnie's brain whenever I possibly can. And and I'm glad that we've got developed a nice friendship. I've known him back from his days when he was at the national team. And, you know, during the 2015 World Junior Championships, when he was the assistant coach for Marco Siki, uh, when we were all in Montreal, I talked to him on a daily basis, and I still have my notebook full of notes of things that we talked about, whether it be offensive systems, defensive play, individual drills, individual skill development. I mean, he has really got it going on, and I'm looking forward to seeing what he could potentially do depending on on what Buffalo does in terms of removing the interim tag and making him the full-time guy or, or whether or not they hire somebody else. But just what he brings to the table, not a lot of people have, and his contributions to a lot of great players that came through the national program. Everything's th- when you come to the national team development program, you're a superstar player that just needs to be maintained and not developed. But like Don, Don Granado is a guy that really helped players like Noah Hannafin and Zach Rinsky and especially Charlie McAvoy. Like he, he said to Charlie, when Charlie got to the program, said, Hey, you want to be as good as those guys? Here's how you can be, but don't walk around thinking you can't be because you can't. And he really got Charlie to believe in himself and developed a plan for Charlie to, to become a better player. And look at what McAvoy's doing now. And a lot of that credit goes to Donnie Granado during their time at the program. So I, I'm, I'm intrigued to see what he does. And there's a part of me that thinks that if they sell off some of their assets and he winds up with a team that's got a lot of American League guys that are probably up but might not, might not or maybe shouldn't be, and some guys at the, Ameri- at the National League level that are kind of above average, average NHL guys, he might wind up with more success than the mix that he's got right now because he can get back into that similar mindset that he's had, whether it be at Wisconsin or in the American League or in the East Coast League, where he's building a team, but he's also got some player development going on for down the road. I, I can't say enough good things about the guy. And one thing that I've I've heard a lot about, he's a stickler for details. His practice is he gets the most out of his guys, and and he runs it, it you know, in a pro way. Um, one of the things that you know. A, a lot of people were saying against Kruger was that his practices had a very slow pace. Um, they're very sloppy. Things were never stopped or corrected where, you know, there's, there's two types of coaches where stuff that, that happens, you know, whistle, it's either done right or, you know, we're going to be skating or kind of do it again thing. And others that kind of like to let it go, get flow, you know, now with Kruger out, you know, even, even guys on the team are, are making the note that, that the way that Don Granado gets the most out of these guys could be the best thing for that group, whether they decide to keep everybody in that room or make some changes. Um, but y- you saw the Sabres, you know, unfairly to Don lose two games late in third periods. And one of the notes that he said is this team needs to be in better shape and I can't agree more with them. So it'll be really interesting. Although we're in a, in a, in a weird situation where he might not have a practice for six days. Uh, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see his, the way he's able to, you know, have that message, you know, delivered at a time when we might not have the traditional time in practice to do it. I'll tell you a great story about practice time. And, and then I want to talk about the pace of the practices. 
Pat Firschweiler is now the associate head coach at Western Michigan. He was the assistant coach in Detroit for Jeff Blaschel for, for a good long time. And towards the end of one season, Blash came in because they were struggling in one area. Blash came in and said to him, hey, when was the last time we practiced this concept? And I can't remember which one he was. And Fursh was responsible for charting all the practices and seeing what they were keeping up on and what they were doing. So he said, we maybe had about five or six games left in our season. He goes, I went back. And not counting day of game skates, we only had 37 practices all year. Like, think about, think about how long the NHL season is. So you take out wow. the game day skate. You take out some of those individual just skill practices where you have five, six guys on the ice on an optional. Full team practices from the start of a season to the end, 37 practices on an 82-game schedule. This is what I'm talking about. It's not a development league, the NHL. And sometimes that's where you run into some problems. And that's something that Donnie has to face with the fact that he's a tremendous practice coach, but he might not get enough practice time to get everything done that he wants to do. And you got to be selective at times during the course of the season, balancing the work to rest and, and travel ratio. But when it comes to practices and, and him saying this team needs to be in better shape, he told me an interesting story. I am not a big believer in the bag skate. Practice is not going well because to me, you bag skate a team during a bad practice. Practice generally gets worse. And most guys, if practice is not going well, and then you bag skate them for 10 minutes, they've got two words on their mind. Then the second one is you. Yeah. But <laughs> what, what, what Donnie said to me was a lot of times when he was with the national team development program, remember these are 17, 18 year old kids. Good ones, but 17, 18, and they're still kids. He said a lot of times when practice wasn't going very well, instead of bag skating him, I made him play 10 to 15 minutes of four-on-four full ice. Four-on-four full ice is like a bag skate in a lot of ways. I mean, he was controlling the shift times, and he was controlling the pace, and he was making things go. Maybe he was spot a puck somewhere else to make guys chase and change the parameters of the game. But the bottom line was after 15 minutes of four-on-four, that was a pretty intense skate. And he pushed them pretty hard. Instead of the two words with the second one being you, now they had two words on their mind, and the second one was go. And that was exactly the way. I so believe in that philosophy. I had so many arguments with Long Island-based youth hockey coaches on, well, we're going to bag them now. We're going to bag them now. I'm like, why? Like, first of all, you're going to bag them now. The way you bag them, their skating stride is going to break down halfway through the bag skate. So what are they doing? They're surviving. They're actually doing counter to what you should be doing. It's absurd. Exactly. And, and that's why, to me, you try to get back to coach. what you want to do, they're going to be, that the tank's going to be partially empty. And they're going to be pissed off. I mean, who the hell works well when they're pissed off, right? Yeah, so, I you mean, want, it's, you want to play for your coach. You you, you want to. And, and I, I love hearing these things about Granado. Part of me, I was a Ralph Kruger defender. I'll, I'll come out and say it. True, yeah, true. You were. I thought he, well, Dwayne, I thought he's a very smart hockey guy, and I still do. Um, I just think that, uh, the revolving door between GMs and coaches in, in this NHL, with especially with the Sabres, it, it takes a vision, right? And we've had some poor drafts, and there hasn't been, uh, you know, a president of hockey or a GM in here for longer than two years, right? So a lot of these coaches are, like Don, are put in a spot, like you, you mentioned earlier, Dave, he could, he could have a completely different roster two weeks from now. Right. Yep. And it's about getting most most out of your group, and I don't think it could be a better guy than him. So I'll, t- I'll um, tell you one thing on the on the scouting side, and it's interesting because having been through this for eleven years, there's a very interesting dynamic between GM, head coach, director of pro scouting, assistant GMs. I mean, there's a very unique dynamic, and each team has its own way that they that they do things. I don't know Kevin Adams. I've heard very good things about him, but I don't know him. But he is a Miami University guy, so he's got to be pretty good, right? So we'll start there. Good good old CCHA, now NCHC guy. We like that. 
That's number one. But their director of scouting is Jeremiah Crow, who for a long time with the national team development program, when Donnie was there, he is a really sharp guy. I mean, this is a bright mind in the scouting community, and he is only just getting started. My, and you got to give a team a couple of years. The college hockey takes three, four, five years to rebuild a program. At the NHL level, you might be able to do it a little bit faster with some free agency and some trades and that kind of thing. I think that this kid is pretty sharp. And if he gets some time, along with Kevin, to work together at this, and we'll see where Donnie shakes out and all this, those are three pretty good minds that I think lend to a bright future, just depending on how the chips fall. But with Jeremiah Crow, I think you're in pretty good shape. I, I once heard J.D. Forrest talk about uh, Jeremiah Crow saying that, you know, he'll be in this league for a long time and he'll have a lot of success, and uh, he knows him very well. So uh, excited to hear that because a lot of people, Dwayne, a lot of Sabres fans, they don't have any, any reason to really believe in things will get better, and that's the mirror of the pain of being a Sabres fan. But that's why I like having, having Dave on and yourself. Uh, we can actually talk about the differences that are being made and, and, and you know what can help turn the ship around. Now, one question I have for both of you is this. It gets thrown around a, a ton, the word culture, but I really feel like um, – you know, when you look at the Flames bringing in, uh, who'd they bring in? Um, a coach, Daryl Sutter. Yeah, bringing a guy like Sutter. They did it for a reason, right? To try to change something up. Uh, the Sabres have, you know, cult, it could, could be culture, could be lineup, but a, a culture change needs to take place. Uh, for you guys, what's one of the most important things Don's got to do here early um, to, to instill that winning or that? you know, whatever it may be, mentality that we apparently don't have here. Dwayne, I'm going to go with this, and you read off this after what I say, okay. and tell me, what, tell me what you think. There's a couple things. Number one, Red Gendron, who was a great assistant coach in the NHL for a long time and a great assistant coach at the college level and now the head coach at Maine, he has said to me many times, the team that gets off with the bus with the best players generally wins. Right now, the Sabres will very rarely, if ever, get off the bus with the best players just with the way that their roster is currently put together. Now, that's not a knock against them. There's just teams in a league that are better. Yeah. So, so there's number one. So the big challenge right now is to get a team that knows that it goes into every game a little bit undermanned to figure out a way that they believe that they can win. And that, to me, is the start of the culture. Now, I think veterans and good veterans and veterans that have been around help create a pretty good culture. And one of the great cultures that I was ever exposed to was the 1994 Rangers because that group yeah, had yeah. so many guys that had been there and so many, the, so many leaders, right? And the mantra of of both the GM Neil Smith and the head coach Mike Keenan was oh. go out and get guys that have done it before. And I think that that really pays off in spades. And when you look at that roster, you, you had the the core Rangers that grew up as Rangers, whether it be Alexi Kovalev or Brian Leach or Mike Richter. I mean, you, you had some of the homegrown guys. And then you look at what Neil Smith added. He added half of the Oilers Stanley Cup teams from the nineties whether it be Bukaboom or or Messier or Graves or I mean you go down the list and well, he made that trade at the deadline that yep. wasn't extremely popular either, right? That right, ended up helping them. Absolutely. You get Steve Larmer in there, you get Glenn Anderson in there. So, so to me, at the pro level, to be able to build culture, I think you need guys that have won before. The Red Wings were the same way. They kept bringing in guys that had been there before. They kept bringing in guys that were established guys. And I think that you know players who know their way around the locker room and know their way around the league tend to be able to help you build a winning culture a little faster because they understand it. It's really hard yeah, to hand a team over to young guys. Get, those guys are hard to get. Before yes, they, they are. 
but before you add in your piece, Dwayne, how do you go about that, Dave? It's it's not easy, especially in COVID times, to go out and get good culture guys. It really is hard. It is. And a lot of guys have no trade clauses. A lot of guys have certain places they'd rather play. And like I think Buffalo is a good destination. I've always liked the city of Buffalo. I think the building's unbelievable. I've done two frozen four or two world juniors and a frozen yep. four in that building. Like I like that building. I like the harbor center next to it. I like what they did with the hotels right by it and the area they've mm-hmm. created. Like Buffalo's a nice destination. It's a great summer spot. It's a good place to play. I think that when it comes to to building that culture and getting the players, you got to get that's where the savviness of your staff comes in, and that's where your advanced scouting comes in. And to me, pro scouting is I mean, amateur scouting is vital, but pro scouting is really good too. And being able to identify the guys that can fit in your lineup and do they fit in your price tag and uh, what's your cap situation and what are you spending? But uh, I think that the pro scouting side of it, the being in the rink, pro scouting, eyeball test type of mentality where you're just watching and watching and watching and putting pieces together like that becomes an all important component to getting the right guys into your room, especially the right captain that could come in there and all of a sudden say, this is the way it goes because you guys know from playing the the most important three minutes in a game is between periods. When after the coach walks in and talks to his team between periods, it's what the captains say next. And if your captains and your leaders in your room aren't as dialed in and an extension of the coaching staff as they need to be, you have a really hard time playing with the big boys. And, and I feel like that's been commonplace ever since Ryan O'Reilly left. I know it for a fact because he was a guy that, I, you know, playing, playing with guys that played with him in Erie, he was that guy in the locker room where after the coaches came in, um, you know, he, 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 he was an extension of the coaching staff. And, and one knock, Dwayne, do you think that Jack Eichel is that type of leader? Um, here's the thing with Jack Eichel. Um, I do think he, I do think he has the ability to be that kind of leader. I think that when we, when going back to what we talked about earlier, there's a lot of, been, been a lot of inconsistencies with this team. You, Jack has been through how many head coaches is being drafted here? How many GMs? There has been a huge lack of a scouting staff. Obviously they gutted the scouting staff, uh, to start the year, you know, you know, mostly due to COVID, uh, you know, speculated that it was just to save a buck or two which some people might get. I personally don't agree with it because scouting is the life force of building a successful hockey team. I've heard and that, that rumor. Is, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it really is. It, it, it's, a, it, you know, it, it drives. And you, you look at teams like Chicago, LA when they were winning cups, Tampa Bay, like those teams are built through great drafts and great scouting. And we just haven't done well. I was looking at the past decade or so of just, you know, the Sabres draft picks, and it is just – it is depressing how many times you've missed in the top three rounds, um, top four rounds. You know, you know, once in a while, you, you know, guys like Alex Nylander, uh, Grigorenko. I mean, I, you know, I always still on the team, but Gergensen was a first-round pick. You know, I, I love the way he plays. I love how hard no, how much of a hard-nosed, blue-collar player he is. You know, he works his ass off. But, you know, he was a first-round pick that didn't really pan out the, the way we wanted him to. And – just, just not hitting on those picks. So, and, and and on top of everything else, you go from you know having a you know a long t- long time coach like Lindy Ruff, then you go to Dan Bylsma, you know Ron Rolston mixed in there before, then like all these this carousel of coaching. And I think Jack's on his like fourth head coach now, and you know you just don't have any consistency to build a winning franchise. And then team, you know, players on the outside looking in, who you know you know, who might consider coming here, whether via trade or free agency, there just seems like, wow, man, like, you know, do I really want to go there? Like, you know, 
you know, do I really want to play for a team with a, a, in a locker room like that, where it just seems like it's a carousel, you know, it, I, I don't know. I just, you know, and, and going off what you said earlier, you know, bringing in veterans that, you know, have won before we just had one in Eric Stahl. And I, I, first of all, I agree with you. You need more players like that. You need guys who have won cups. You need rings in your room, hundred percent. Because those guys, those those guys know the grind it took to get there, and how hard you have to work, and what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. And you know, it was real. I was excited when they brought in Eric Stahl because it's like that guy. Granted, he, granted, he stole. We all in Buffalo say he stole the ring right off her finger. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, he 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 knows what it takes. He's been in the league for you know he's played over a thousand games in the NHL. The guy knows what it takes to win in this league. And, I, you know, granted, it didn't work out um, again in this year with COVID where we mentioned before there isn't a lot of time to practice. Uh, right. That's right. Get all together. Yeah. Like, like to go back to your point, you're in Dave's point about it. This 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 quote from Granado for me says it all about, you know, it's not just the coaches. It's not just the players. It's a, it's a mix of leadership. Yeah. Don Granado said, as a coach, you only feel like you need to give them – what they need at some point they have to take over. You can't play the game for them, obviously. And that's always been my approach. A lot of coaches is getting out of the way. It was time for me to get out of the way. I really felt that these guys have been great. It was at that time and they took over and it's talking about their win. Right. And it's just that mix that you talk. Yeah, and and another thing too, another thing too, that you heard from Granado was the fact that, you know, under Kruger, there wasn't a lot of video review going on, which blows my mind. I get it that there isn't a lot of time, but you like video review, that's huge when it comes to preparing for games, you know, looking at what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong and fixing those issues. They weren't, oh, they were, apparently they were almost doing that. They were almost doing none of that. That's crazy, Dave. It, I, like I, in my experience in the OHL and in the East Coast League, video was an everyday thing. If if is is it like I do you know in, in the COVID times, is it still that way with every other NHL team? Where was where the Sabres the outlier? I know that the schedules have been have been jungled, but they they haven't sacrificed video, have they? I'll tell you this. I'm not working in the league this year, so I, I don't have a great grip on what's going on in the league. I will tell you this from a video standpoint on the college side. Those teams were doing a good chunk of it, but a lot of times they were either doing it in small groups or they're doing it by Zoom. And I had a lot of coaches say to me on the college side that they found a lot of success with the Zoom calls because there were some players that were a lot less afraid to speak up in the Zoom meetings yeah. than they were in a room of 25 people you know, whether it be like a theater room or a that. conference room. You know, I, I get that. I, I respect that. Especially I mean, with like, younger kids. The younger kids, I right. can imagine. Right. I mean, if you're an introverted kid or a quiet kid or a little bit shy, you know, I I, I mean, that's never been an issue for me. But I, I mean, I I mean, I can understand where where people could feel that way. And, you know, on the video thing, there's no question. I think as coaches, we can overdo it. And, you know, I might be a bit of an overdoer when it comes to some of the video stuff. Like, I, I watch a lot of video every day and I, I share some of it with my son who's an old five and but it, not everything. And I'm a big believer in the Pat Riley philosophy of you don't have to teach them or show them everything you know, but you've got to make sure that they really understand the little bit you decide to teach them. Yeah, and, and that has really helped my coaching it's philosophy hardest, as I've gotten older, and that's that's a big part of it. Dave, the hardest part in, in, for me as a coach is picking and choosing my battles, right? And if I see four things to that I saw wrong there, which one am I going to focus on? You know, and, and especially in, in goaltending, and that's very challenging. Um, one other one other thing that I, I thought that that the players said that I thought was interesting about Granada, uh, he made a calculated, 
Granada. <laughs> Granada. I don't know who Granada. Um, is. We don't know who Granada is. You know he he made obviously a calculated choice to increase the practice time, um, but he, he he preached about playing with pace, defending aggressively, and, and seeing more time on the offense. And when we go down to X's and O's, there, I feel like the changes he made were in in our neutral zone defending and our ability to regroup. And and a little bit I saw of that. I I didn't see that in Ralph Kruger, and that's only going to play play in into you know helping our guys develop. I have to ask you though, Dave. I know defensemen, um, you know, they develop later. It's taken Eric, uh, Eric, Aaron Eckblad this long, and unfortunately has that injury. It took, um, you know, That's a devastating injury. It's it's taken. Um, what's it called in Tampa? Jesus, how am I forgetting his name? Sergeyev, um, no, no <laughs> even though he is a stud, uh, Hedman. It's taken him long, and Sergeyev too. But Darlene, like for for. All the, the hype about him coming in, this the losing hasn't helped. Is 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 Don going to help in in that way, even in the interim tag? I'll tell you what, Don might be the perfect guy for Darlene because he's used to that age group. Re- remember, like Darlene came to the league at an eighteen year old, and like I, I, it's funny. A lot of people have been talking about the two kids in North Dakota, the two defensemen, uh, Jake Sanderson and Tyler Clevin, and whether or not they should go back to North Dakota or they should turn pro. And you know, I know they've had Jacob Bernard Docker that just turned pro as a as a junior, and but Clevin and Sanderson were only freshmen. And I keep saying, you know, Sanderson could play on Ottawa's blue line like tomorrow. Like he's like Kale McCarr. Like like he could go run their power play right now. But here's the but. I felt that way about Kale McCarr. Kale McCarr went back for a second year, and I'm telling you, that second year was a big deal in making Kale McCarr NHL ready. That second year for Quinn Hughes Quinn was a big deal. He was that, too. Yeah, that too. second year for Zach Wierenski was a big deal. I mean, so so when you take a look at some of those guys and, and the fact that they went back for some extra time, defense is a late matriculation position. He walked in there. Everybody thought he was ready-made. Listen, just because you're a first-round pick or – or a top five pick, that doesn't mean you're an all-star tomorrow. That just means that somebody thinks you can be a really good player somewhere down the road. And he may be a really good player somewhere down the road. But the lack of his ability to marinate somewhere where he can go out and make some mistakes on a smaller stage probably has hurt him a little bit. And Craig Button, to me, said it best. And he did a podcast a couple of years ago, and he said this to me too, and I think it's a, it's a really good statement to keep aware of. You've got to be – you might draft the guy, but you are as responsible for his development as he is. And if you don't have a development model in place for when he gets there, then you're asking, you're setting the player up to fail. I'm not intimately in tune with what Buffalo did when Dolan got there. But I, it's unfortunate they didn't get a chance to play 100 games in the minor leagues where he might have come up in a, in a little bit of a different situation. I mean, that's only my hypothesis. He came, but, he came but, in league 18. But, yeah, 18. Young, they need younger – some of these younger defensemen – uh, they may need some time. I mean, some of these guys come in there and they're great. You know, Charlie McAvoy hasn't missed a beat. Sergeyev didn't miss a beat. But Shetland started slowly. With, with, with the tag of being the first overall pick, I think that that puts it in the tough issue, right? Because you're like, it's almost expected at this point. But D developed differently. Would the best path have been staying in the Swedish Elite League? Would it have been coming over to the AHL? Like, looking back on it, I know it's it's, it's tough, but what do you think? With, with with that first those other guys like Makar and 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 um and he and Hughes, it makes it easier, even though they're only four or five spots back, they don't have that number one tag. How often do we see a number one pick go back? You really don't. And to me, like if you're a young stud defenseman, 
what's the best thing that you could have when you're 18 years old? A coach who knows how to develop defensemen. And like I joke with people, I said the worst thing about Darlene is I wish he could have gone and played a couple of years of college hockey. I mean, oh, there, there, are some great, great there are some great coaches in college hockey in terms of developing defensemen. Like I, you know, hypothetically, I'd have loved to have seen that. It would have been great for the kid. But uh, the, you know, you, you need to bring these players in, and you need to be in a situation where you can continue their evolvement. And I, somewhere along the line, I think Dalene just kind of hit a patch. I still think he's going to be a special player. I mean, like he is as skilled as any defenseman in his age group that I saw, but he leveled out a little bit. But mm-hmm. I also think that great players be our, our great players when they're surrounded by some other great players that push them to be even better. And I think that's like the next challenge when, when it comes to him. Here, here's my thoughts on Darlene and, you know, you know, we'll wrap this up here in a minute, but when it comes to Rasmus Darlene, there, there are a few things when, when it comes to any athlete, not just hockey players, athletes is there's, there's things that are hard to teach. One of the hardest things that one of the things you, I think I don't think you can teach is the ability away from your coaching staff, away from your team, to strive to be better. You have to have that internal motivation to want to be better, to get yourself to that next level, to not have to be told by a training staff or a coach or a teammate, say, hey, this is what you need to do away from us to get better. During the whole COVID pause, he put on almost 20 pounds of muscle. I mean, everybody, most of the people saw that picture of him playing ping pong in somebody's backyard and nothing put a pair of swim trunks. The guy looked like Ivan Drago. That That is absolutely serious. The guy was just huge. And we, it was, we, we were all so hyped up coming this year. We almost forgot that this kid at the time was 19 years old. 19. So came in the league at 18. I, I think, you know, I, I think the, the stat was he, he was he was second all time at, uh, for points for a teenage defense and only behind Phil Housley, I believe, which that's, 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 that's a great name to be, you know, mentioned with is Phil, uh, you know, w- w- how his career went and other uh, U S born defense, uh, uh, not another, but a U.S. born defenseman. But again, you know, he, he, he put all that work in on his own to get to the next level. And is he having the year we want to have him here? No, absolutely not. My personal opinion is, and I said this all leading this season, you need to get a veteran defenseman to play alongside with him. You know, I I, I was a huge advocate of that. You know, I remember when Travis Ham, uh, was Hamannick was available out of Calgary. I was like, get that guy, have him play for one year with Darlene, you know, just, just to calm him down because we had too much youth on our blue line. And, and, you know, not enough veteran leadership. And I was a huge advocate of that. Just get somebody that, you know, you know, could calm him down if he has a bad shift, you know, you know, can work with him, sit, sit him next to him in the locker room, help develop, you know, build a culture with him that, you know, you know, obviously you're still a kid, you're going to make mistakes, you know, don't sweat it. Just, you know, work on the next shift. I mean, he, he hasn't had that yet here in Buffalo. He hasn't. He's been playing with other young kids, guys like Yoki, Yoki Harju. You know, he's playing with, I think, Will Borgen for a little bit. Just all these young kids just coming into the league. I think that's where the Sabres, not only say failed him, but not bringing in that veteran leadership, somebody to play alongside him. A guy like Hal Gill would have been perfect. Like oh, Hal yeah, Gill in cool. his last two or three years would have been, that's the guy you're talking about. But I, I totally 100%. get it. 100%. So, I know, you know, there's a lot of fans here in Buffalo. Yeah, yeah, he's a bust. He's a, he's 20 years old. He's 20 years old. You call this kid a bust? Yeah, he's you like, watch him at 23, 24, 25. Oh, Listen, the, the human male brain doesn't fully develop till 25. It, it, you watch him when it hits that point. I mean, that's gonna be a whole different ball. I'm, I'm 29. I'm still waiting, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> 
you know, if you want to talk about comparable, people like to, you know, compare him to, Nor already trying to compare him to Norris Trophy winning defenseman, like guys like Victor Hedman and Ekblad. Like, Victor Hedman didn't score 40 points in a single season until his sixth year in the NHL. Darlene did it two years in a row as rookie in his second season in the NHL. And you got to remember that second season cut short because of COVID. This season, another shortened season. So you know what I mean? He's, I think he's four or five points away from scoring 100 points in, in his career as a 20-year-old defenseman. That's mind-blowing. Yeah, he's going to have struggles. You want him to struggle because you you want him to work through those struggles. You want, you want him to push through those struggles. You know, find me a player who hasn't struggled in their career at, right. at that age. You're not going to find anybody. Nobody. No, that's right. That's absolutely right. So, Dave, as we wrap up, you, uh, you'll be doing both games. Um, so, uh, St. Cloud and uh, Minnesota State, uh, 5, 5 p.m. Eastern time. You can catch it on ESPN, too. Uh, will you be doing the broadcasting there, or did you mention something about uh, the radio? So, we're on radio. It's uh, Sirius and XM Channel 84. You will have the live broadcast of both games. It's uh, Brian Tripp doing play-by-play, -play and, and I'll be the analyst on those Folks, two games on Thursday and the championship game on Saturday. Don't don't don't, don't don't miss out. You'll 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 be you'll be hearing some of the best radio play by play in color from our guy Dave Starman. I love the way you're able to break down. I think you're being in that bubble, uh, the NCHC bubble, um, and seeing the and you know even though it's not all those teams in there, I think that you've you, you've had such a good pulse on the hockey game uh, this year. It, it's going to be very fun. Um, for to, to see your insight, uh, I always love when you're on the call. So, fans, tune in channel 84 um, on 5 p.m. Uh, on the 8th, that's a Thursday, and then five, you know, right after that at 9 p.m. Uh, don't be, don't, don't be, uh, don't be late to catch our, our, our guy Dave finish off the doubleheader. You guys can't find a better guy to, you know, call games than Dave Starman, man. He did a phenomenal job during the world. Uh, the World Junior Championships, you know, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, that's actually back when originally when I got in touch with uh, Dave. And I, I again, very grateful for a second time you've come on with us, Dave. Hopefully many more times uh, times to come. I hope you enjoyed yourself. And uh, I hope when you're in Buffalo, you know, whenever that is, you link up with Dwayne and Cully from Two Goalies on Mike, and we make a three goalies, one, one bucket of wings. <laughs> that's a deal right there. All right. I love it. Awesome. Dave, really appreciate your time. Uh, I love it, man. Episode 58, always a good one. Uh, Dwayne, well done. And uh, Dave, we look forward to having you back. Thanks. Hey, guys, thanks for having me on. And let, let's keep the goalie talk going. Love Absolutely. It. Uh, just to remind everybody, this episode of Two Goalies on Mike was brought to you by Manscaped. For all your best male grooming needs, below the waist needs. Remember, if you use the code word TRAINWRECK, all in capital letters, T-R-A-I-N-W-R-E-C-K, you get 20% off and free shipping. Get the Lawnmower 3.0, an absolutely beauty of a razor, waterproof, and comes with a, uh, a plastic guard to prevent any nicks and cuts. I have it. It's amazing. And it has a flashlight. You never knew you needed a flashlight for your razor until you actually have one. It actually helps. It's the uh, man, Dwayne. I call mine the man tickler. You don't feel a thing. No, no cuts and no, no little cuts and scrapes. It, it's tickler. a beautiful product. <laughs> you guys deserve. You guys deserve a Screen Actors Guild just for getting through that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Dave. Again, everybody. This has been episode fifty-eight of Two Goalies, Mike. 
Two goalies, one Mike. Not two goalies, Mike. Two goalies, one Mike. And we will talk to you guys next week. Shaking the world's done shaking me down. The world's done shaking, the world's done shaking me down.